It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. You're very welcome to Late Lunch this Thursday afternoon. Let's get straight to the chat today. During COVID, you do know there was no shortage of conspiracy theorists uh, left, right and centre all over the world and in this country too. And, you know, the World Wide Web, the Internet, social media, you name it, Look, the thoughts and thinking of people, anybody can put anything up there and there's a huge market and following for it. My first guest on the show today is an analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. It's a think tank that studies polarisation and extremism. And she's just brought out a wonderful new book called Web of Lies, The Lure and Danger of Conspiracy Theories, especially here in Ireland. I'm delighted to say hello to Aoife Gallagher. Hello, Aoife. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I was just thinking, going through the book and uh, ahead of our conversation today, sure, you know, in the world, there's always been people who, uh, you know, question. And it's right to question as well, or believe that the elite, you know, are manipulating things in their favour against the majority of us, you know, and the common good. I take it it's the internet and social media and all that that's really driven this wild. Um, yeah, I suppose there's uh, there's yes and no to that. As you said, that kind of this kind of thinking has always been around, and I kind of delve into the history of conspiratorial thought in, in the book as well, and kind of the way it's kind of changed through the ages, and the way conspiracy theories are, are molded to different generations. I suppose, but you're right in saying that the internet has made them more accessible. So, I mean, before the internet, if you, if you think about it, if you were into conspiracy theories, you had to really seek them out. You know what I mean? You'd mm. have to go to you know, uh, I don't know, a sketchy bookshop or a video shop somewhere to kind of find find the content that you're looking for. But now they're essentially everywhere on the internet. And um, I also discussed this in the book, the kind of the, the business model of social media platforms is kind of built for amplifying this kind of content as well, because it, it tends to amplify the outrageous stuff, the stuff that gets engagement. Um, and so it just means that, that these kinds of theories are, are more accessible to people. Yeah. Mm. And, and of course, it's been there and in the uh, 20th century, the Nazis, the fascists and the the lies they put out and people believed and look what happened then 
leading to the Holocaust and beyond. But in a modern sense, can I ask you this? Donald Trump, you know, and fake news where he, you know, he coined this phrase, really, uh, aimed at the media when he came to power, especially. Is he the modern day father? Um, I think, I mean, in my opinion, Trump's entire presidency was defined by conspiratorial belief and in amplifying conspiracy theories. And you see that now in the States, you know, a a decent segment of the voting population of the States have now been radicalized into various conspiracy theories. At the moment, I'm doing a lot of work around the, the midterms that are coming up next week in the US. And there is just this general sense among Republican voters and Trump voters that the election, the 2020 election was stolen. That's all kind of rooted in conspiratorial thinking and rooted in conspiratorial movements like QAnon, that, that kind of mm. position Trump as the saviour, um, the saviour of the world, who's, who's trying to save the world from, you know, various forms of evil. Um, so, yeah, I think Trump has had a significant influence in how conspiracy theories are kind of built and how they're, I suppose, weaponized by different actors nowadays. Yeah. And of course, you had a man called Johnson, who's been in the news again this week, or all around Brexit and on from that. He couldn't lie straight in the bed. And you have now Russia and, you know, the, the Russia Today, the news and what's been pumped out there to the Russian people with regard to the Ukrainian war. Putin has seen that this is a weapon too. Very much so. I mean, Russia has been one of the countries that has been, you know, kind of probably one of the most successful at kind of um, promoting disinformation campaigns worldwide for for years, even before the internet, to be honest. But Mm. um, it's been one of the most successful countries at really weaponizing the power of the internet to promote this disinformation as well. And as you say, I mean, it's not even Russia and the UK, it's Sweden, it's Italy, it's Brazil, Mm. it's the US. We're seeing the the rise of these kind of real far-right and fascist movements around the world. And a lot of it is rooted in getting people to believe in things that are completely untrue. And as I mentioned there, the introduction, we're not behind the door ourselves here in Ireland. She saw it during COVID times. I saw it here every day as I sat behind the microphone and presented this show. You'll see it online all around vaccination, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate, etc. Is it fair to describe this uh, group of people in this country and perhaps beyond as Cranks United? Um, Well, I suppose I I would take a a bit of a different view, right? I mean, I think the first thing to say is that the the online world has created a kind of international movement. So what you see happening in countries like the US or the UK or around the world is is also happening here. Now, from what I can see and from, you know, other people that kind of look at this, uh, at these kind of movements in Ireland, um, the movements in this country are not as large as they are elsewhere. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not causing bother. They are, of course, causing and bother. And as you said yourself, we saw it quite a lot during COVID. Um, and they're very adept at using online platforms to kind of promote themselves. So they tend to be very loud online. Um, I would also take the view that, and I kind of try and make this point very, very clearly in the book. Um, and this is from talking to a number of people, especially people who have, you know, quote unquote, lost people to conspiracy theories in the past year. Mm. Um, th- the thing is, is that we're all kind of built to believe in conspiracy theories in a lot of ways. We, you know, there's kind of cognitive functions in our brains that can kind of be taken advantage of in order to pull people into into that line of thinking. So part of me has actually quite a bit of empathy for for people that are, that are pulled into these movements. I don't think that the vast majority of people that believe in these things are necessarily 
bad people. I think that they've been manipulated by some very, very powerful forces. Um, and I talked to a number of psychologists as well, which I, I find this very, very interesting. And what they told me is that people tend to embrace conspiracy theories when certain psychological needs in their lives are not being met. And these needs are the need to feel safe and secure in the world, the need to have knowledge about how the world works and what's going on, and the need to feel good in your social circles. So when these needs are not being met, people will have a tendency to, to embrace conspiracy theories instead as a way to try and fulfill these needs, although the, the, the needs are not being fulfilled by conspiracy theories. They actually find that they make these things worse. Um, and that kind of, you know, when you think about that, it, it's, it then becomes understandable why mm. conspiracy theories tended to increase during the pandemic. And, and you know, even if you go back to the likes of 9-11, 9-11 was a, a big moment for the yes. for conspiracy theories. So in times of uncertainty, in times of fear, when people are looking for answers to really to, to things that are really, really hard to get your, your head around, that's when conspiracy theories will, will will tend to flourish. So as much as, you know, I think it's it's really tempting sometimes to describe people as cranks and crazy and, and stupid and idiots and whatever other kind of pejorative term you want to use to describe them. And there are those elements in those movements. I'm not saying that, the, you know, they're all, you know, they, they should all be treated with the same amount of empathy. But I I do think that a lot of people that get pulled into these things, as I say, are, are being manipulated. Um, and the danger really is that it can turn really kind of, you know, genuine and decent people into and it can kind of strip away their empathy and strip away their rationality in a lot of ways, too. That is really enlightening. And I'm the best words I've ever heard, you know, to try and understand. <laughs> I say, honestly, you have just I, I'm just mesmerized by what you say there. And I've hung on every word and you, you've explained it so well as well. And it's important to, you know, you w- would dismiss people and I'd be in to as well, but I want to ask you this. You mentioned people very well educated. I'm not saying you know whatever education you have, it's fantastic and it's never lost on anybody. I've said that many times. But look, people who are you would say sound of mind and everything, and suddenly you see them being you know sucked into this, and then mm-hmm. this is the point, Eva, that I've noticed. COVID was the start of it, but now they're latching on to other conspiracy theories about everything in life. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, the point on education, I think, is an interesting one because I think a lot of people, as you say, think that that, that uneducated people are the, are the people that will fall into this. But if you look at, I have a, a chapter in the book looking at science denial, which is really, really, really interesting because science denial is kind of one of the, the main hooks in the science denial movement is using uh, experts in the field, using doctors and using scientists and using people that have PhDs who will promote science denial, who'll promote anti-vaccine stuff and, and things like that. And those people are some of the, the most educated people in the world. And it really shows that it, you know, it, it doesn't really matter your educational level. You, as I say, people are still susceptible yes. to this stuff. Um, and on your second point, well, your second point, I just, it you just know left that, my that head yeah, No, 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 that there's, you know, it started with COVID, but now oh, yeah, they're sceptical yeah. of absolutely everything. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And again, kind of to position this in, in the online world, the way I try and describe it is before COVID, you had a lot of these movements that kind of lived in their own in the online world. So you had, you know, the likes of QAnon, a kind of US-based conspiracy theory movement. You had the anti-vaccine movement that had been built up over years and years. You had movements against things like 5G technology. Uh, you had far-right extremist movements. And for the most part, they kind of, they, they stuck to their own kind of ideas and spaces online. But when the pandemic came around, all of these movements essentially coalesced. So what we have now in, in online spaces where, where people would have joined 
groups related to, you know, anti-lockdown measures or anti-vaccine measures. We now have all of these different groups that are spreading all their theories within these groups. So, you know, it, it also tends to feed into this, you know, what, what we find with conspiracy theories is that when you believe in one, you'll tend to believe in more than one. Yes. They have this kind of snowballing effect. And the reason for that really is a lot of the time, as you kind of mentioned at the start, a lot of the, the enemies are the same in conspiracy theory movements. So, you know, it's the idea that all politicians are always um, working against their citizens or that the media is always lying to you. It's this kind of black and white thinking. There's no, there's no nuance. There's no, um, there, there's no room for, okay, maybe the media is just, you know, sensationalizing or biasing, the, you know, certain elements, or maybe the media sometimes makes mistakes. It's black and white thinking. It's the media is always lying to you or politicians are always lying to you. And so it's really easy for people to kind of fall into, into f- further and further movements. And what mm. I've seen, one of the, the, the things that has really come out of the, the kind of COVID denial and, and COVID skeptic movement is a, a huge shift into climate change denial, um, which is very, very worrying for, for obvious reasons, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So paranoia, fear and lies masquerading as the truth and people are convinced by this and really there's no talking to them. So I want to ask you, and I know you dedicate uh, pages to this in your book, how do you talk to somebody or is there just, as I said, no talking to them, they're lost? Yeah, it's it's very difficult, right? And, you know, I would caveat all this by saying that the, the, the um, advice that I give in the book is you know, it's a, it's a best case scenario, really. I think it is very, very difficult sometimes to talk people out of this stuff. And there is a tendency to just try and, I suppose, tell people that they're wrong and kind of show them facts and try and kind of use logic to kind of get them out of it. But at the end of the day, a lot of these movements are not rooted in logic. So um, the advice that I gave, and this is kind of from a, a number of different places as well, would be the, the top piece of advice is to try and keep people in your life. And if that means that you have to say, we're not talking about politics, we're not talking about COVID, we're not talking about vaccines, that's all well and good. Because the danger is that people will become really dissociated with reality and will be will be pulled further down the rabbit hole as such to the point that they're not connected to reality at all. So the first piece of advice is, is to try and keep people in their lives. Um, beyond that, if you really want to try and pull someone out of this, again, it comes back to empathy. You really have to try to understand what it is that pull people into these movements. What I find a lot of the time is that the real root cause of conspiratorial thinking comes from very, very real fears and very real grievances that people have in the world. So trying to kind of tease that out, trying to figure out what it is that, that people are are scared of. Do you know what I mean? Someone might have had a really bad experience with yes. with some kind of healthcare professional or something like that and their and their trust in medicine is gone. And it's trying to kind of understand that um so it really is a lot about developing trust, developing empathy and kind of it's a very slow process, to be honest. Um, and as I say, I do kind of end the book, I suppose, with, with some kind of practical tips, I suppose, for people to try and do that. But it is it is very difficult, admittedly. You've done a great job, may I say. And I've only scratched the surface today, folks, with Eva. There's so much more in this book and it it's thought provoking. It's interesting. It's educating and enlightening, as I said, as we heard from Eva herself just a few moments. Ago. It's called Web of Lies, The Lure and Danger of Conspiracy Theories, and it's selling really well at the moment, and I ain't surprised. Lovely to catch up with you today, and thank you so much uh, for your time and joining us on Late Lunch. Thanks so much, Jerry. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Aoife Gallagher there. Some great people in Navin, Louise, we want to mention today in the show. Yeah, I do. I just want to say congratulations to an old friend of mine, Helena Byrne. And all in Tara Court, who I think is the first estate, could be wrong, first estate in Navin to 
uh, fundraise and buy their own defibrillator for use in the estate and its areas and Helena herself and another chap Peter Kavanagh who I know is um, trained in um, as a first responder so they have training as well if anything goes wrong Well done to them that's fantastic that's yeah. real community you know pulling together and mm-hmm. in action for the greater good yeah. isn't it and it I think really uh, you know, and especially times like this but yes every house gave 15 euro Well done well done to all Get of it. you. Congratulations and lovely to acknowledge. That is just great. And that, mm. please God, you know, mightn't be Might save a life. ever used. But the point is, when it's, it's needed, there. it can save a life and it is life saving. Love it. I love it indeed. Congratulations to one and all. News and weather on the way. Top of the hour, two o'clock on your late lunch. And taking us there, it's Mr. Van Morrison and days like these on your late lunch on LMFM Radio. Welcome to the show. When it's not always raining, there'll be days like this. Yes, I was chatting with Eva Gallagher there about her brilliant book, Web of Lies. Thanks for all your comments. James says, how do you know that book isn't a conspiracy a conspiracy theory itself? Oh, no. From the ridiculous to the sublime, James. Thanks for the comment. Somebody else says Pfizer admitted last week that the vaccine didn't actually stop transmission. I saw that, yet people were not allowed into premises, etc. It certainly protects people. And I've had the Pfizer jab myself, every single one of them. Uh, Elle has been on to say, imagine how the world would look now if Charles Manson or Ted Bundy would have had access to the internet. I shudder to think, to be honest with you, Ella. And my old buddy, Peter. Well, I knew he'd be forced in. And Peter, I was going to give you the book. But as Louise said to me, why would you waste a book like that on Peter? And I think she's absolutely right. Thanks for your comments, Peter. We always enjoy them. Uh, and uh, I, I may get back to it before the end of the show. Anyway, moving on on late lunch today, I'm delighted to say hello to my next guest because you see, buying a property is a big deal for everybody and anybody. And there are pitfalls involved. And she is someone who knows the property game. She sources and buys property for people. And I'm delighted to say hello to her again. Brefney O'Kelly, afternoon. Good afternoon, Jerry. I'm delighted to join you. And you're right, there certainly are some pitfalls and some key mistakes there, that I see buyers make. Yeah, there are indeed. And we're going to go through a few of them today, please, because there are a lot of people buying, and especially up here in the northeast, the property, uh, the building is booming and people are looking at properties all the time. Now, yeah. first point, and, and, and you've been discussing this recently as well, mm-hmm. people looking for properties, you say you just must have finance in place. Are there a lot of people go out there and they don't have the money? Yes, uh, I have found that a lot of people pick up the phone to me to talk to me uh, for one reason or another. And one of the first, like, for example, they might be finding it, they're always being outbid or they um, they can't find a suitable property. That kind of reason they might pick up the phone. But a question I always ask them is, can you fund this property today? E.g., if you were to see a property you liked today, can you physically pay for it today? And a lot of the time, people can't. Mm. So what I would just say to anyone who finds themselves on daft, and I think we all find ourselves on daft uh, one time or another just looking at yes. things, is ask yourself, are you or aren't you a buyer? And you aren't a buyer if you can't fund it today. So if you were to go and make a bid on a property, an estate agent is going to ask you, so how are you funding it? And you're going to have to provide proof of funds, either a current loan offer or cash. 
So the real the, the point I want to make really, Jerry, is that we have people who are buying property have very little time usually because they're working at their work to make money to buy the property. So what I am suggesting is that they don't confuse looking on daft with actually thinking they're buyers mm. because if they don't have funds in place, it usually takes about six months or eight months to actually get a mortgage approval through, in which case the market has moved on and the houses that you're looking at today will not be the same houses in eight months' time. And who knows what seismic shock might have entered the whole market anyway with Brexit or COVID or Mm. something. So if you're looking today, but you can't buy today, you're not a buyer. So I suggest that people get their funds in place and then they don't have to buy a house. But if they don't have their funds in place, they definitely can't buy a house. Yes, you're not going to buy. And I think that is really sound advice. What about somebody who's upgrading or selling? They have their home. They have a mortgage on it. Perhaps now they have equity. Uh, You know, if they sold it, they'd have some cash as well. Mm. What about that scenario when you're looking at another property and you have your home? Should you have your home sale agreed nearly before you move in that direction? Well, I think you definitely should nearly have your home sale agreed for sure. And when the market is really booming and in a really strong rising market where there are piles of bidders for a home, most agents won't look at a bid from someone who is subject to the sale of their house because they'll think, why would I enter into an engagement with you? when you have to actually sell your home and go through a few loops, when I can deal with this cash buyer who's ready to go and doesn't have to wait to sell a home. However, we're moving into a slightly changing market now where it's not forging ahead. And if you have a home that's in really good condition, is nicely presented, clear and clean of clutter, and while it may not be on the market yet, If you can say to the agent, no, it's not on the market, I do need to sell it in order to fund the purchase, will you come and look at it and value it for me and all my paperwork is in order and I'm going to be able to sell it quickly. You know, you've no title issues, you've no funny extensions that need planning, etc., etc. If your home is readily sellable in a desirable area, in this market it's possible that an agent will consider a bid from you, but you need to be ship-shaped. You can't... you can't invite them out to have a look at a house that's cluttered and full of, yes, you know, that's not readily sellable. You need to have your paperwork order in order. And by paperwork in order, if you're thinking of selling your house to upgrade, that means you want to tell your solicitor you're going to sell. You want to ask your solicitor to request the title deeds of your house from the bank. That can take a while. That can take a couple of months so that the solicitor actually has all that paperwork in order ready for you to sell your house. So there's a bit of a runway to selling your own house. Yes, and and that is one of the five points we're going to cover today. We might as well just sign off on it now. Whether you're a first-time buyer, if you're selling on, if you're upgrading or whatever, engage the solicitor early on. Yeah, yeah, and we'll come back to that. Um, But so the first point really is get your finance in place. And as you say, Jerry, if you have to sell in order to finance it, yes, ideally you'd be sale agreed. And even more ideally, whoever has agreed to buy your house will have signed a contract on it. Mm. But even if you haven't even put the property on the market, if it's in good, presentable, sellable condition and your paperwork is in order, by paperwork I mean title and planning permission, um, then an agent might take your bid. Yeah, okay, that's that's good to hear. Now, you say too many people focus on the property rather than the area. Definitely. And I can understand why, because 
um, when you see a nicely presented photograph, we can all be seduced by a nice finish, a lovely kitchen or a particularly nicely presented bright sitting room or hall. But it's the area that's really going to make your life happy. So what I always suggest to people is it's an old wisdom as well. Buy the area first and then the property. So buy the worst house in the best area. Mm. It's a much better idea to have the worst house on a good road than the swankiest penthouse in a bad development. Yes, good advice there too. Now, viewings, people, you know, go to viewings uh, willy-nilly, ad infinitum, you say a total waste. Yeah, I do. Um, not, Not so much a waste, but not the first port of call. So let's say you're looking on BAFT, you've got your finance in place, and let's say your budget is 500,000 and you're looking for three beds. You're not going to have a million properties available to you. The chances are there's going to be um, a selection. Let's say there's 25 that catch your eye. Mm. Of those 25, you're going to find some areas more appealing to you than others because they're close to work, close to your family, or for whatever reason. And my suggestion is, identify three or five of your favourite houses or properties and do a drive-by viewing of them. And it's amazing how, before you ever pick up the phone to the agent and you just out and stand in front of the house, straight away you can say to yourself, no, this isn't for me. I see that this house actually sides on to a major road. I see the house next door has a huge overbearing extension that's going to make my house feel dwarfed. You can tell a lot. There's a bus stop outside this house that I'm looking at buying. I don't want to buy a house with a bus stop or a bin outside it. Or there's double yellow lines outside this house. I'm not going to be able to park in front of it. Um, or um, other reasons. Yes. But usually there's some kind of infrastructural impediments that you can spot straight away just by driving by the house. And that is important. Rather than looking at something, get out there, see them, drive by them and get the feel for them. Now, this exactly. is this is a key point. Um, bidding on homes and the, the system we have here in Ireland, you ring up the agent, you put a bid in it, he comes back to you, I have 5,000 more, I have 10,000 more and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. There's a point that really you shouldn't go beyond, isn't there? Well, actually, I don't agree with that, in oh. fact, Jerry. I, no, I don't really think that there's a point you shouldn't go beyond. And I think that's where people can sometimes trip them up. My general approach is, if you like it, if it meets your needs, if you can afford it, bid it and buy it. Yeah, that was the I point I was making, Breffney, that, you know, I'm, t- I'm looking at it purely from an affordability point of view. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you can't go beyond it, then yes. don't go beyond yeah. it. But don't, I think, set yourself an artificially high, Okay. Uh, well, I won't go above this. If you can afford to and the house suits you, mm. I don't see any reason not to bid. It's going to be your home. It's not like it's an investment and you're planning to sell it on and a profit in three years' time. But I do feel, Jerry, that a lot of people make the mistake of getting outbid again and again. Right. If you're consistently being outbid, it means you're looking in an area that you can't afford. Okay. Remember that asking prices are typically 10 to 15% below what the agent expects to get. So if your upper limit is 300, stop 
bidding on houses that are 295, you know, asking 295,000 if you keep getting outbid. My suggestion is that you start looking at houses that are asking 245,000 if your upper limit is 300. Yes, really important that. And you can see the logic in that as well. But I suppose the other question is, Breffney, and you alluded to a moment ago, what if the heat continues to come out of the market and you know you're looking at something you know somebody said to me once it'll never be as cheap as it is today and then the Celtic Tiger collapsed and that ended that theory yeah well a few things I'd say there one is it's no one likes to be in a home in negative equity but if you don't actually have to sell it it's not really too important whether it's a negative equity if you don't plan to sell it. You usually will weather the storm and it'll rise again. Look, we've, what we've just seen recently, we've seen it go from a peak in 2000, late 2007 down to a trough in 2014 and now we're back up again in 2021 and now we're starting to go down. So you can see that we tend to run in 8 to 12 year cycles. So if you can sit it out and if you plan to live in your house for the foreseeable future, you can just ride out the negative equity storm. Exactly. And that that is the thing. If it is your house you're going to live in, what about it? The value goes up and down for sure. Just before yeah. we finish, just back to the solicitor and engaging the professional early. Yeah. So if you are buying in a house and you go sale agreed, most people put all their efforts into the search for the house. They don't think beyond it to the professionals they're going to need once they are sale agreed. But you are going to need a solicitor and you are going to need a surveyor and you're going to need them in a hurry. You're going to need them within seven days usually of going sale agreed. So my advice is don't wait until you're sale agreed to identify a good solicitor and a surveyor. Start asking your friends now, not just for names of solicitors they used, but have they actually been good? Have they been responsive? Have they been a pleasure to deal with? And similarly with surveyors, get start following a few surveyors on Instagram. Like there are uh, lots of surveyors. There's a podcast called GetHouseSurvey.ie and you can follow them and start to inform yourself about surveys and then choose a surveyor so that you're ready to go and you actually know what they're going to do for you for your money. And similarly with the solicitor, if you get introduced to a solicitor, you can look at their website, you can read their blogs, you can get a feel for how they work and you can start to have a bit of a relationship in advance so that it's not all panic stations when you're sale agreed and you're just flailing around for the most available solicitor and you can start shopping around as well for a solicitor in terms of pricing. Wonderful advice. Where can my listeners find out more about you? Um, On my website brefneyokelly.ie and people can buy an hour of my time to just advise them on whatever property, wherever they're at in their property journey. That's what a lot of people like to do. Fantastic. Delighted to chat with you again today. So informative. Thanks very much Brefney. Thanks a million, Jerry. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. That's Brefney O'Kelly there. Dot IE, and that's B R E double F N I E. Brefney O'Kelly. Dot IE. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. A rock of sense, isn't she? And you won't go wrong with her in the property game. Louise, I'm going to ask you a very. Per- no, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to tell you something that's very personal. All right. It's not Did too you- personal if it's on air, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> Should I tell them everything on air? <laughs> <laughs> you tell them everything about me on air, do you? No, I, I do about myself too. They say at home, she can't hold your water. But I sense part of the job, you know yourself. Um, do you know that picking your nose is good for you? How's pick? How? 
How is it good for you? Very good for you. Very healthy thing to do. It's just <sighs> new research is out that picking your nose and eating it. Oh, no. No. It's really... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Glee, as long as don't good for it. you. No. Yes? Oh. Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I, can I, I'd, I'd pick me nose privately. Not, not in front every, look, of anybody. I agree, I think everybody picks their nose. Doesn't everybody pick their but nose? Thanks. It, no. Something wrong there. Something wrong with that. It's good for you. How how is it good for you? They've just science has come out and said that they've just discovered that it's it's a it's a very healthy thing to do. How? Because whatever is in the, the snot, when, when you consume it, does good for the overall body. No, I'm sorry. I thought the whole purpose of a snot was to get rid of the bacteria that you're after um, inhaling through your nose and and this builds a block so basically what you're doing is you're taking it from your nose and you're swallowing it back down into your system so you're ingesting that bacteria again Ooh Miss <laughs> Louise Walsh Dr Walsh PhD That makes more sense Dr Walsh PhD in snots and nose picking Do you know, do you know how it's healthy? Because somebody watching you do that will actually hurl and get rid of any bacteria in their stomach. <laughs> somebody says, oh, oh, go on, Jerry. That story was done by somebody that picks their nose and eats it. No, it's a scient- look it up. It's a scientific finding that it's good for you. So would you like, you know, go into the ear, take the earwax and eat that too? No, it's not. it's the same thing. The, the earwax doesn't taste nice. Oh. It's, there's a funny taste off the earwax. Oh, put some tomato ketchup on it, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Bogies are all know, right, wouldn't you? No, they're disgusting. Bogies are all right. No, they're all right. No. So if you saw somebody <laughs> picking their nose and eating it, you'd be fine with that. She's <laughs> what they're going to think of me. I don't shower. He eats his snots. <laughs> Please help me, somebody. <laughs> Louise, Jerry, I'm a kid. That's my job. <laughs> 
There's what about ten foot between us, isn't there? That, that, let's says, keep it like that. Mary says that's disgusting. I'm switching you off. Yeah, I'd agree Mary, with Mary. Don't I wish go. I could switch off. Don't too. go, Mary. Don't go. Please don't stay with us. This is a subject that <laughs> we're coming out on radio today about nose picking. It's a subject the that show has had to- a level. It had a level. <laughs> You've just, you know, gone under that level. <laughs> come on, come on, let me know. Do you pick your nose? Do you eat it? No, 086 no, no, would admit to eating it. I bet you somebody, and I won't reveal <sighs> your name, I absolutely promise you, and, and God may strike me dead. Haven't said that. No, I'm not going to say it. Go on, say it. Say it. There are worse, I suppose there are worse things you could do with it if you don't eat it and you had no tissue at hand. <laughs> Ugh. There are, there are. Anybody out there admit to picking their nose and eating it? 086 658. No. I think somebody will. I You're think just putting bacteria back into your body. It's good for you. Your body was trying it's to expel. It's good for you. The not. scientists, uh, it's, it's not. a scientific Peter, proving, where are you? Proving. I agree with Peter in that. <laughs> and it's not a conspiracy theory. It's the truth. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's disgusting. That's what it is. I don't care what, what hit it the, is. Hit the mock turtles quick. Yeah. <laughs> because mock when turtles, you put, can you pick it when or you can put, you dig it? When you put that finger up your nose, <laughs> you got to dig it. you got to dig in there and get it. it. <laughs> 086-1800-658. Come on. Tell us. I Few promise. days off to take soon, no? <laughs> Now, Tutankhamun, tell them what you found out about Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun <laughs> had his personal own nose picker. There you go. Yeah, but Tutankhamun's dead. <laughs> <laughs> A long time as well. All <laughs> oh, the comments that are coming. And he was wrapped in tissue. <laughs> <laughs> to make probably up for his non-use of it during I'm sorry lifetime. if I put anybody off their food. I'm here eating a bowl of stew, Jerry, and you're talking about bogeys. Oh. Uh, Caroline Bork, oh, for the love of God, Jerry, I'm just making apple tarts here. I, I, I'm just not hungry anymore. Disgusting, <laughs> says Mary. I'm turning you off. Excuse me while I puke, says Christine. Uh, right, Jerry, that's it. Me and Tina in Rowan Heights, our stomachs are stick and we're changing stations. I hope you're still there. And Jerry, you're disgusting. You've made me ill with that conversation. Jerry, I love your show, but not today. That's a disgusting thing to talk about radio. Jerry, it's not fair on anyone. No, it's not. <laughs> it definitely isn't. It's not fair is right. And we're not going to talk about it anymore. Hold on, hold on. Will I clap? clap? I'm giving myself a few slaps in the hand there. The bogey men will come to you. <laughs> <laughs> and talking about bogey men and bogey women, it is Halloween, of course, on Monday. And with that in mind, I'm delighted to say hello again to my next guest. She is an Irish Times best-selling author. In 2021, her book, The Legend of Valentine's Sorrow, was shortlisted for the Young Adult Book of the Year. She's a regular book reviewer on Ireland AM, and she's just a real good sort. And her new book is called The Spectacular Library of Magical Things by Caroline Busher. Hello. Hello, Caroline. Hi, Jerry. How are you? It's lovely to be back on again with you. And you with me. I am truly delighted. Well, you know, it's timely, this book. I'm talking to you today with Halloween on the horizon next Monday. Tell us this. Did you really have an encounter with a banshee when you were a child? Well, um, I did, or at least I 
thoughts I did. My imagination is very vivid, Jerry. But um, I did when I was a young girl hear this shrill, lonely cry one night, and I'm convinced to this day it was the banshee. But um, I, I, when I was researching my book, because as you know, it's all about um, a young banshee mm. and how she is misunderstood. I spoke to lots of older people now, generally, who said that they have heard the banshees cry as well. And, and you know, I can remember my late father talking a lot about this as well in his time. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a facet of Irish life going back that was a, a subject of mystique. So you, from your experience as a youngster, have brought this into this book with Shifra, a young banshee. And the, the book itself ties in with a very famous uh, rebellion in Ireland, the 1798 Rebellion uh, at Vinegar Hill. That's right, Jerry. Um, well, basically what happened was so many weird coincidences happened when I was writing this book. But first of all, I always wanted to write this story about a young banshee. And um, I was doing a lot of research into a magical island and phantom islands off the coast of Ireland. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to set my book on an island off the coast of Wexford and imagine that it's the home to the banshee. But you know, during COVID, when everyone was out going walking and having a right time going around the hills and everything, I spotted these um, stone huts and I wondered what they were. So I did a bit of research and I discovered that years ago in Ireland, there was a tradition called bullying, where young teenage girls would go up on the mountainsides and stay on their own for the whole summer and they wouldn't return home till Halloween. And a lot of these young girls said they saw ghosts up there and they saw banshees and all sorts of things. But really what they were doing was bringing the cows up there to milk them and to make butter over the summer months. But it was all these kind of coincidences coincidences came together and I decided to set the book during 1798, um, like you say, during the Battle on Vinegar Hill. Indeed you do, and, and you know, bringing that back to life is part of your writing as well. But here's the other thing, there's another mystical aspect to this. Talk to me about this island, or this phantom island off the coast of Ireland, because perhaps it's not a phantom island. Yes, well this is very interesting, because years and years ago, when men used to go out on their boats, um, travelling around the world and trying to find new lands, there was um, on an old map containing Ireland, there was a little island off the coast of this, actually the west coast of Ireland called High Brazil. And this, not the Brazil we know, it was just known as High Brazil. And lots of sailors say that they've seen this phantom island off the coast of Ireland that appears once every seven years through the, through the fog. And some sailors have reported hundreds of years ago arriving on this island only to find that it was inhabited by some giant um, black hairs of all things. So um, I thought, wow, this is amazing. I mean, even if you Google High Brazil, you will find out all this information about the Phantom Island, um, which I thought, wow, that's an amazing thing. And if a, if a banshee was going to live anywhere, she'd live on a magical island. She certainly would. But tying all this together, and a lot of research I know has gone into this and bringing it together, even, may I say, your book adds another chapter, if I could say that, to the mystique that surrounds this time of the year. Because, you know, the the clocks go back, the dark evenings are in, the whole Halloween thing. Now, I know, uh, Caroline, it's been, it's been you know, so commercialised with the US, you know, slant. You know what I'm talking about on this whole Halloween thing. But there is, we have in Ireland, this is where ha- Halloween began. Is that fair to say? 
definitely is. I mean, you know, America and all these other countries that have their their um, their pumpkins for Halloween. I mean, we used to go around in Ireland years ago as a turnip carved out as a lantern and dressing up and going door to door. And you know, we have a huge um, history. To, to celebrate, of course, All Souls Day um, in, in Ireland. So it came from that kind of tradition and knocking on door and going from door to door to the neighbours' houses. So it's a huge Irish tradition. And uh, as you know, Jerry, I love to bring Irish folklore and history and heritage to life for our children today so that they understand that we're steeped in history in Ireland. And a lot of these traditions indeed did come from here. The Witch's Meadow, even one of the chapter titles all, uh, you know, is so appropriate at at this time. But you you touch on something there that uh, is interesting. There wasn't pumpkins. You're right. It was the turnip. We had to carve out the turnip. That's the way we did it. We went door to door and we just didn't say trick or treat. We used to do a little performance, a song or something like that, you know, for maybe a a couple of coppers or something from the house. It's changed quite a bit, hasn't it? It has changed quite a bit. I mean, like it's become like anything now, it's become so commercialised. But that's an interesting aspect that you say there, Jerry, about the performance aspect. I mean, Ireland is known as a land of storytellers and performers. So, if, you know, even down to being when we were young children, people going door to door singing a song, doing a little dance, you know, it's literally in our blood. So it's no surprise that there's so many great actors and writers and singers from Ireland because it's literally part of our who we are. The Bowley Girls, were they particular to the Wexford area? The Bowley Girls actually were all around Ireland, Jerry, and the last accounts I could find of them were in the 1800s in this kind of location. Um, but on the west of Ireland, they continued until about the 1900s. And like I say, these girls used to go up just in the summer months and live up in the mountains without any adults or anything like that. And they'd come back around Halloween. I mean, it's a fascinating thing to think of um, for young women to do. Um, you don't hear of it now, of course, but that was an old Irish tradition. It, it was indeed. And the Vinegar Hill, back to it. You know, th- this was part of the Irish Rebellion of 1798. Vinegar Hill and Wexford, the headquarters of the Wexford United Irishmen. They, they say there was 13 to what, 16,000 British soldiers there and yes. thousands upon thousands of United Irishmen as well. But it was a very unfair battle because one side were well armed and the other side really had nothing. Exactly. But you know what? They had so much spirit and, and everything. And what I found interesting, Jerry, in the research is that it wasn't just the, the Irish men that went up, it was the women and the children. And they actually had, they camped on Vinegar Hill. The families went up there, you know, so it really was a very unfair battle. But um, they were all got together, the, like the women and children and everything. And I highlight that in this book because obviously it takes the battle takes place during the time of the book. So the Banshee gets embroiled in this, um, in this you know, this amazing piece of Irish history history but it is it's interesting to think that the, it wasn't just soldiers or the men that got involved it was the women and children as well and of course the ancient powers there's power and mystique in this as well that you can't see or touch but your characters have Yes, exactly. I mean, it's always that, you know, that link to the supernatural or the other world. I mean, I love the Banshee, but I do like fairies as well and fairy folklore. Anything to do with that is very interesting. And it's a part of our, like you say, our culture and heritage that is a very interesting element of it. But I like to tie that into history so that young readers can learn about the history of Ireland. And to also, when they go to visit places, they can say, do you know what? That was in a book I read. And because a lot of books that 
I read as a kid were based in England or in America, like you say. So it's nice to have Ireland represented in books. And actually, my publisher, Pullbeg, are very passionate about that. And I think it's really important to, for young Irish kids to see the places they know and love in their books. Absolutely. Well, look, it's great to catch up with you briefly today. I want to wish you well with the book. It's been endorsed by everybody. And to mention again, it's the spectacular library of magical things by the lovely Caroline Busher. Thank you so much for joining me on the show again. Thank you, Jerry. I had a great time. Thank you to all your listeners as well for supporting me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Roy Taylor is a very good friend of ours on Late Lunch and he is one mighty man. He was diagnosed, as you do know, with motor neurone disease back in April 2018 and he's given it his all since to raise awareness. What a job he's done and raised so much money through his talent, his wonderful music talent for research into motor neurone and to support the Irish Motor Neurone Association. And he's now teamed up with his good friend Finbar Fury and they've released a beautiful new single called Music Store. And to tell us a little more about it, I'm joined by Roy's son, Terence. Hello again, Terence. Hi, Jerry. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me on the show. How's Dad? He's doing well, Jerry. I know he sends you and all the team at LMSM a massive big hello because um, he, he thinks the world of you guys. But he's doing... He's doing well, Jerry. Um, his, his illness has taken has thrown a few punches at him uh, since maybe you've last spoken to him. Uh, the punches have landed uh, in terms of you know his mobility. Arms and legs are a lot weaker now. Um, breathing problems and things like that. But it's amazing. Whatever you know, motor neuron disease is taken from physically. It just adds to his creativity, uh, which. Is He's he's an amazing man. He has all sorts of gadgets and everything to uh, use his his computer and and make new music all by himself still. So it's incredible how he's responded to the challenges that he's faced over the last few years, you know. He's wonderful. Do send him our regards. And I know he'll be listening to this as well. Uh, But, uh, Roy, we love you and we think of you too. And we... I uh, want to return that love to you today from everybody here in LMFM Radio. Now, this song is so touching. And, of course, Finbar, he's known for many years and Finbar knows him too. F- Finbar wrote this song, is that it? Just explain the song itself. That's right, Jerry. So, um, my dad's dear friend, Peter Reeves, who was a fellow jump-the-gun uh, musician back in the early recent days. But uh, Peter is it one of my dad's best friends, visits him every week uh, with Brian O'Reilly from Jump the Gun and also. But Peter is Finbar's uh, producer and musical director and uh, would be quite close with Finbar and was telling Finbar all about my dad's story. My dad and Finbar would have met many years ago. But on, upon hearing my dad's story, Finbar wanted to come and visit my dad with Peter. So um, the two guys came up. Uh, for lunch one day and it was a lovely, lovely afternoon. I was there with a few glasses of wine and a few stories were told. Probably not best for radio, I'd say. (laughs) But um, it was a really lovely afternoon and there was a sort of instant connection between my dad and Finbar. um, Kind of inexplainable in a way. They just got on so, so well. And a few days later, Peter rang me um, when I was in the car and he said... Terence Finbar has a song called Music Store that he wrote about 30 years ago and he never finished it. But upon meeting Roy again after so many years, he was inspired to finally finish the song and he wants to invite Roy to sing and record the song with him um, and release it. Um, And not only that, but all proceeds of Music Store going 
to raise awareness for motor neuron disease. So we were just absolutely blown away by the generosity Finbar has shown. And he regularly visits my dad to this day. And they're, they're, they're great friends. Oh, isn't that just the loveliest of story? So yeah. where can people get this song or download it or, you know, contribute to the fundraising? Sure, Jerry. So Music Store is out now and it's available on all digital platforms, iTunes, Spotify, you name it, you can download it. And we'd ask the, the fine listeners of LMFM, if they can, go on to iTunes and, and purchase the song because um, we get the most money for the charity from iTunes rather than Spotify, etc. And it also helps, helps us get up those charts once again. So it's available everywhere for download. Let's make it number one and let's hear it now what it's all about. This is Music Store by Roy Taylor with Finbar Fury. God bless you all, Terence. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Jerry. I came to road by Music Store. I felt a love I earned for more. It's passion how I long to hold. A love affair with ancient homes And who can say where love will show So pure, so fine, a gentle rose The sweetest kiss I've ever known Was a teardrop falling on my soul and who can say where music's born? Free spirit of the song flows on. It circles us with nature's womb to breathe sweet life on a treasured home. I've wept with fear. From your past, your love, your joy, our music's heart. You bade my life in mystery and gave freedom to my destiny. Now, Web of Lies, Aoife Gallagher's book, I just needed you to send me a little word called Conspiracy and I would give it to somebody. Still queasy after our nasal natter. I'll have to give this to Brenda Joyce. Well done, Brenda. The book is yours this afternoon. And thanks to everybody who got in touch with us. It's just about ten past three on late lunch, Thursday afternoon, on this day of our Lord, the 27th of October. And it's time for this. The Late Lunch Artist of the Week. Artist of the Week. It's Doctor Who all week and the hits rolled on during the late 70s and into the early 80s for them. However, Keyman and one of the original founders, Ray Sawyer, actually became disillusioned and quit the band to pursue a solo career in 1983. And while the others stayed together and continued to tour extensively for another couple of years, Doctor Who would be no more in 1985. Roll on the years to recently. Yes, in recent times, one of the other founders, Dennis Lacourier, put together a lineup 
for a 50th anniversary tour in 2019. But due to a combination of his own ill health and COVID, the tour was iced until September 2021, kicking off in Manchester and continuing right through this year and on into next year, 2023. Yes, coming to a venue near you soon, possibly Dr. Hook ESQ with chart-topping tunes just like this. God, I nearly missed me cue there attending to me nose. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I'm only joking. I'm only joking for the love of God. Anyway, that's my artist of the week, Dr. Hook there. And we'll round off the week tomorrow with an absolute classic from them and bring the curtain down on their story. Your late lunch on LMFM Radio. Yes, we're heading into the darker evenings. The clock is changing, reminding you at the weekend. But sure, it doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter if you don't change the clock. Sure, it's changed for you anyway. That's it. Simple as that. Don't worry about it. There was a time when you would. Anyway, the winter weather is on the way. It's important to take care of your visage and the skin on your face. And we're talking about it next. The seasons are changing and it's an important time of the year to think about our skin care. As the uh, evenings get longer, the darkness and the sun disappears for the next number of months. I'm joined on the line by a lady who is a woman who looks after the stars in this country. She's simply brilliant. She's uh, the owner of Akina Beauty and Laser Clinic on Lower Leeson Street in Dublin. Delighted to say hello to Ivana Breen. Hello, Ivana. Good afternoon, how are you? I'm really good, thanks for joining me on the show. The seasons are changing, a different regime needed at this time of the year. Yeah, so what's happening is that we're losing the moisture from the air, so there's all the humidity that's there during the summer months, keeping our skin nice and hydrated, has now dropped and it's getting colder. So as the temperature drops, the drier air pulls the moisture from our skin and that can be very upsetting to the natural balance between the oil and water in our skin because when those two are balanced, that's when your skin really functions efficiently and uh, it looks lovely and dewy and glowy. Uh, to tie in with the season a personalised moisturiser you're a big fan of but how do you know how do you make a moisturiser personal to yourself I know you're going to say contact me make an appointment yeah that's it exactly so what we do is we measure the skin we use dermatological tests to measure for lipids and hydration in the skin and by doing that then we can get the exact right dose of hydration and lipids for you in a moisturiser that's completely correct for what is going on with your skin at that time because remember your skin is constantly changing you know in the the summer months it's different to how it behaves in the winter months and then you've got things like hormones and diet and lifestyle and stress levels all of these things have an impact on our skin so our skin is always changing so it's good you know, it, when you go into a shop, there, there are hundreds of thousands of different moisturisers available out there. So it's very difficult to know and how to choose which one is right for you. So by doing this personalised moisturisation technique, you're getting not only the right moisturiser for you at that time, but every time you get measured. 
Is it important to combine a serum with a moisturiser? At this time of the year, it's a good idea to introduce a serum just to give yourself a little bit more hydration because, as I say, that humidity is gone from the air and so it's starting, the air is starting to strip the moisture from our skin. So we need to try and replenish that as best we can and a serum, um, a light serum under your moisturiser is a great way of doing that. Of course, a cleanser is a big part of the regime. Do cleansers or should they differ in uh, the way that they work on the skin from season to season? Yeah, again, during the summer months, we tend to be sweating a little bit more. Our oil glands are producing more oil. So using um, a, a more of a gel-like cleanser or a foaming cleanser in the summer months is good to help remove the, the excess oil. Uh, and all the build-up of dirt and grime throughout the day. But then once we get into the winter and autumn months, you're really, again, because you're losing moisture in your skin, you don't want to be stripping any more of the lipids from your skin. So changing it up to a milk cleanser or an oil-based cleanser, ideally, is the one that I favour at this time of the year, is probably the best solution. Now, the sun is fading in the sky. We won't have as much sunshine during the winter unless we get a real frosty, uh, lengthy spell, of course. But it's a different sunshine to the summer. And some people would say, you know what, I don't really need to continue the sun protection regime I've had, you know, during late spring, summer, early autumn. What do you say to that? So I think people equate wearing sunscreen to heat a lot of the time. And really, it should be called uh, UV protection rather than sun protection because the sun is always there. Even behind the dark clouds, the sun is there and the UV rays are penetrating those dark clouds on a rainy overcast day and they're still reinforcing damage. So although you might not necessarily get a sunburn at this time of the year, the UV rays and that cumulative damage that they do is what really can um, be a problem for the skin. And in terms of long term, that can accelerate your aging. And of course, then there's always the issue of uh, potentially getting skin cancer. We're talking, I take it, mostly in the context of ladies. But what about the boys in Ireland? Are we getting better? Slowly but surely, you're getting there. (laughs) Slowly but surely. And it is great to see, you know, like, I think um, men feel that they don't know what to do and um, they, they, it's a guesswork for them. But like, even the basics of wearing a sunscreen and cleansing your skin on a daily basis is very important. Thank you so much for joining me. Wonderful advice there. And do check Ivana out and her team at Akina Beauty and Laser Clinic on Upper Leeson Street in Dublin. Thank you so much, Ivana. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Take care now. Bye-bye. There you are. Skin sorted on late lunch this afternoon, even round the nasal area. Tomorrow on the show, John Gilroy is with us uh, all about Clockton Halloween. Nicola Cassidy is reviewing books for us. Rick Cronje chips in with the wine. David Sheehan with the sport. Your TV theme and comedy and and much more besides. Eddie Caffrey's coming next with The Drive on LMFM Radio. We leave you today in the company of Mr Dermot Kennedy. See you for the final show of the week. And there won't be a nasal chat in sight on Friday. Bye. There's lessons in love sometimes. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 